You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Thank you for listening to episode 47 of the Saturday edition of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. It's Friday the 29th of July and my name's Charlotte Greenway. Well, Glorious Goodwood is almost over with four days behind us, but there's still one more to come. And we'll look back shortly at the three Group 1 races from this week. But first, a look at this week's news and the breaking news on the podcast this morning was that unbeaten Epsom Derby winner Desert Crown is likely to miss the remainder of the season. And here's what Bruce Raymond, racing manager to own a side Sahel, had to say. Well, it, 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 it's healing well. It's not, it is a very it's a minor injury, enough to just stop Michael um, preparing him for the uh, mid-summer races. And um, we were hoping to get him ready for the maybe back end for the ARC or, or the champion stakes. And that's in Michael's hands. It, it, it depends how, how things go with him. Um, so... I must stress it is a minor injury. I mean, we're we're nearly in August now. Um, if he's if he needs rest and he's he's on the easy list, and knowing the way Sir Michael operates, he's not he's not going to be rushing him back to the track. I'm guessing. No, that's the, yes, the difficult the difficulty is is. Uh, would he have time to to prepare him, um, and uh, which probably is doubtful. Uh, and so, if he doesn't make the rest of the season, obviously we, we, we'd all be incredibly sad because it, it's such a great story. And he's one of those horses that everyone in the sport has really kind of invested in. Are you pretty confident that he'll be back for next year if the injury heals well enough? Oh, 100%. 100%, yes, for sure. Um, definitely be back for, ne- for next year. Uh, I don't know what the programme is. I, th- I know Sa- Saeed would like to take him to Dubai for the Shima Classic, um, but that's entirely up to him and Sir Michael. I, you know, I would just... We don't know. You, the trouble with the Shima Classic, it's a great race also for kudos for, win- for winning it uh, over there, but... You, you have to wait. You miss some of the uh, early season races, don't you? You have to give them a good rest afterwards. Um, so it's okay if you win, but that's it. So I, 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 that's that's the preparation. That's what is probably probably Saeed is looking towards um, Dubai with him, and pretty confident he'll get there. So really, it's it, it, would you say it's all about 2023 now? It's planning for planning for 2023. Yes, definitely. Wednesday morning was an extended edition of the podcast as Nick spoke at length to Peter Saville, former chairman of the BHA or BHB as it was then, as he, along with key stakeholders from the racing industry, have submitted a plan to the BHA for the restructuring of British horse racing. And here's Peter first identifying the key issues in our sport. The real problem, we have two real problems. One is field sizes, which I'll come on to. The other one is basically a horse drain, or it's a loss of horses at the top end. And that's been caused by two things. First of all, we lost some major owners in the last three years, from Judmont, Chiefly Park, uh, Shadwell, uh, and King Power. 
the bigger problem is that now those horses that are rated in the sort of 80 to, to 85 range are getting offers of up to 200 to 250,000 pounds to go off to America, run straight off the plane and win maidens that are worth $100,000. So what are you going to do? Well, the, 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 the problem that's linked to that is one of field sizes. Um, everybody is identifying that our field sizes are down and we have to solve both of those problems because um, uh, if we don't, uh, British racing is just going to go further and further downhill. Um, as far as the horse train is concerned, we, we've got to give considerably more prize money at the top end. We've got to find a way to get more prize money to the horses that are worth a lot more than they were worth previously. And it's a, a, a racehorse is an asset, and if that asset is worth quarter of a million, then you've got to have a return on that asset that makes some sort of sense. Because if not, you're going to actually sell that asset and move on and do something else with your money. What are the solutions then? What are the solutions? How do you go about doing this? You talk about premierization. Is that does that fundamentally mean putting all the resources that the sport can into the very best racing and letting the rest look after itself? Well, we need to get the best horses racing against each other uh, and racing on races, on in races that are on terrestrial television. And we have a lot of the good horses racing all around the country during the week where they're not on terrestrial television and they're racing for uh, prize money in some cases that is uh, hasn't gone up for, for something like seven years. The minimum values in class one, two and three haven't been raised since 2015. So we have to raise the amount of money that race courses need to put up for the better horses. Um, and we have to get the field sizes right because people bet more uh, on the better and the bigger field sizes. And at the moment, our field sizes are actually not in a structure that any other racing country has. Apart from the real top end of uh, heritage handicaps and open handicaps, the handicaps for horses rated 80 to 100 are down around the average of seven, whereas the handicaps for the horses right at the bottom are up around 12. So you have to get your better field sizes at the end of at the top end of racing because that's where the greater betting turnover goes and what that means is we need to reduce the number of races at the top end and put on more races down at the bottom end and as you put on fewer races at the top end automatically the prize money will be divided between fewer races to start with and at the bottom end the people owning horses down at the bottom end will be running in smaller field sizes and actually will it, it will be good for them because they'll have more races in which to run their horses. This isn't about fixture reduction, this is simply about restructuring. Absolutely. I mean, we need to level up field sizes so that we have the right field sizes in the right class of races. And when we did the analysis of that, we find that you don't need to reduce fixtures at all. You just need to level up the field sizes in the different classes of races. And that means fewer races at the top and more races down at the bottom. I want to drill down into this drain of, of racehorses internationally. Um, your figures, your data that you, you've compiled um, pretty forensically shows that the numbers of horses going to, say, the United States and Hong Kong haven't really changed all that much over the last few years. Where the massive growth area of, of, of horses leaving the country is, is the Middle East. So, so, but these horses are being, are being bought to 
effectively populate an entire racing season rather than because they are attractive to a, to another nation to, to race it in, in their races. That's not going to stop, is it? If, if Saudi Arabia and Bahrain need to come and buy a whole ton of horses to populate their season, they're always going to pay over the odds. Well, maybe they will, but the owners will be less willing to part with those horses if they're getting the returns that they ought to be getting for the value of their assets in the UK. But if and and and, and to to the to the point of a, a, a territory like Hong Kong, we're getting reports of, of Royal Ascot winners making a million and a half. Uh, surely, no amount of added prize money is going to to mitigate against that. Well, I don't think you're you're ever going to stop the horse train as long as we have the best horses. And the evidence is that we do have the best horses because horses at the top end of handicaps and Group 3 winners and Group 2 winners appear to be able to go to Australia and America and win Group 1s. So we're clearly producing the best quality horses, which is connected very, very much to our breeding industry and shows that we have the breeding uh, talents and the and the stallions uh, that can produce top class horses. The trouble is that when your stallion fees ultimately can be greater in another country because their prize money is so much greater, then you start to lose the stallions as well. Now on to Glorious Goodwood, where of course the highlight on day one was the Goodwood Cup, in which we saw the clash between legendary Stradivarius, Gold Cup winner Kiprios, and prolific winner Trushan. It was the young gun Kiprios who came out on top by a neck to Stradivarius with Trushan a further length and a quarter back in third. And Lee Mosshead, who was watching on, gave his thoughts on how it all panned out. Well, I was watching the race from the, the paddock stood very close to Bjorn Nielsen. So I was watching him watching the race to an extent. And the first thing I would say is that Bjorn Nielsen is a remarkably relaxed man as he watches a horse race, unlike his, his entourage, friends and family behind him who were, who were going crazy. Um, I thought that we had a, a fantastic horse race first and foremost. We had the, the, the best three horses filling the first three places. And I thought it was pretty much a perfect outcome in the sense that Kiprios, who'd won the Gold Cup, confirmed that form, although he's probably horse now with a, a sense of paranoia and that nobody's talking about him still. We had Stradivarius... Well, yeah, Fiona Craig's interview on this podcast two days ago. It's only more grist to her mill, isn't I'm it? I'm afraid it is. I'm afraid it is because, once again, Stradivarius was the horse that people were really watching. Um, I thought he was going to win the race. I looked from the angle that I saw on TV that it seemed set to win the race. I think Simon Holt thought he was going to win the race with his commentary. He was getting very excited, understandably so. But in, in a sense, it was the perfect outcome because he's run a race that means we get to see more of him and Frankie de Tori wasn't really embarrassed because the horse has been beaten. Um, and Trushan ran a fantastic race in third. I thought what was, again, the, 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 the big theme running through it all again was, was Stradivarius and Frankie and Bjorn Nielsen and John Gosden. And I have to say, Nick, I had been quite cynical, perhaps, about the way this had been presented to us, this idea that it was a mutual agreement, that Frankie de Tori wouldn't ride this horse because he didn't want to ride this horse on this occasion. But... Anyone who saw the scenes in the paddock beforehand, I, I was very close by. Frankie and Atseni and John Goss and Bjorn Nielsen were all getting on really well. There was laughter, there was handshakes between Frankie and Atseni. And it did look maybe on this occasion, Frankie had decided it might not be a bad idea if I didn't ride the horse this time. And, you know, I, I think he, he probably would have walked away from the day thinking that went as well as it could have gone for me. 
The highest rated racehorse in the world, Baid, took centre stage in the Sussex Stakes on Wednesday and unsurprisingly kept his unbeaten record intact, although his performance slightly divided opinion as he only finished less than two lengths clear of modern games. And so Racing TV's Angus McNay ran Nick through the sectional timings to see if these could offer any clues as to what sort of performance he put up. Well, I started with the overall time, which was 1 minute 37.74, according to course track sectionals, um, which is a good time. It's not an outstanding final time, but it's okay. Crystal Capella uh, was just under a second slower on day one, the only other race run over a mile on similar ground. So um, it's not a spectacular final time, but it's how that time was achieved that we can work out from the course track sectionals. And what they're telling us is that this was quite a steadily run race. The visuals said that they were going steady because the likes of Chindit were pulling quite hard. And Barat Leon took them along quite steadily early on, well over 12 seconds for the early first four furlongs. I can cite you some of those, 12.29, 12.93, 12.41. They weren't going that strong. You'd expect them to be going closer to 12 if they were going to be running a more evenly run race so what that meant was it turned into a bit of a dash a bit of a three furlong sprint and what we learnt about Baid from that three furlong sprint is that he is very quick and those clamouring for him to run at a mile and a quarter have a legitimate case to make but he is a fast horse and a mile undoubtedly suits him and so he was a good deal quicker than modern games through the final three furlongs. But what the sectionals can do is we can boil those final three furlongs down even more. And if we look at his penultimate furlong, the furlong when Jim Crowley said go, 10.7 seconds. And that's very quick at the end of a mile race. He's shown a sharp turn of foot here to win. I'll give you his last three individual furlongs. 11.2, quickest in the race. 10.7 quickest in the race and his final furlong was 11.31 whilst being eased a little bit in the closing stages so this was a sprint nick uh they crawled to halfway they then sprinted for three furlongs and the finishing speed percentage of 109.74 tells us that he finished the race off 9.74 percent quicker than he ran the rest of the race so you'd expect that figure to be nearer to 100 in a in a in a properly competitive group one mile race he showed a really good turn of foot he's better than the bear result uh, he could have won by further in a more strongly run race in my opinion the third and final group one of the week took place on thursday where hot favorite nashua was taking on the older fillies and mares for the first time but even they couldn't stop her and holly doyle from picking up their second group one together following on from their success in the french oaks Nashua has really been the only three-year-old to come out of Epsom and prove themselves. And Rishi Basad spoke of the significance of this result. Yeah, a lot of significance. Obviously, the performance was uh, hugely impressive in the context of her opponents. Personally, I didn't think it was a very strong renewal of the Nassau Stakes, but we have got a horse who is going forward. And the way she quickened out from the back of the field to uh, go past her rivals in eye-catching style was, was certainly impressive. Um, but it, it was the thing that struck a lot of people, and I think certainly struck me, um, was the effusive comments uh, that uh, John Gosden um, 
described, used to describe Holly Doyle after the race, that is perhaps the most interesting aspect of the, of the whole Nashua, uh, Holly Doyle, John and Thaby Gosden combination. More of a review than a preview this week, but I hope you enjoyed it all the same. Nick will be back with you on Monday morning, bringing you all the latest news and insight from around the world of horse racing. Many thanks for listening and have a great weekend. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.